to the preaching and teaching ministry of Marion Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. We are continuing and getting toward the end of our Bible study series on answering tough questions. I think tonight is the 14th or 15th lesson that we've had. Um, tough questions about God, tough questions about the Bible. Um, you know, can we trust the Bible? How do we know it's not full of errors? And uh, that it's really what God wanted us to have when he inspired it. And how can a good God send people to hell? Why do bad things happen to good people? All kinds of questions we've been wrestling with and looking at from Scripture. And we have about four or five topics we have left. Um, we'll be finishing up before the end of the year, be, uh, before we get into the Christmas season, and then we'll start something brand new um, in the new year. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about what is the unpardonable sin. Uh, after that, we're going to be talking about uh, can women be pastors, preachers, or teachers? That's a big issue nowadays. Another one is, can Christians be demonized? And I said demonized because we often talk about demon possession, but that's really actually not even a biblical concept. Even though it's mentioned there, the word is demonized, influenced. How can Christians, can they be influenced in any way by demons? And if so, how and what should we do about that? Um, and then somebody came to me and said, you know what, I've always wondered about curses, you know, and that whole thing about generational curses and all that. So we're going to work that into the system too, a biblical perspective on curses, including generational curses. So those are the topics I anticipate us dealing with between now and when we wrap this series up. But tonight the title is, Is God Guilty of Genocide? Is God Guilty of Genocide? What does genocide mean? What is Genocide. You got to speak loud if you want me to hear you. An intention, intention to wipe out an entire set of people. That's a pretty good way of defining it. On your note sheet, I have the definition I got off the internet. Um, one of them, anyway. It says genocide is the deliberate killing of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. That's the basic definition, although it's been widened to include sometimes people of a certain uh, political persuasion or a people of a certain spiritual or religious persuasion, okay? But basically, it's the deliberate killing of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. Why would somebody even ask the question, is God guilty of genocide? What did God do that would make people say, hey, God's guilty of genocide? He told Saul to kill the Amalekites, kill all of them. That's not the passage we're dealing with tonight, but the principles are the same. What else did he do? Yeah, when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and took them to the promised land, he basically said, go in, take it over, kill everybody there. That's what we're going to deal with tonight. Chris, you got something to add to that? That is true. David was involved in a number of wars and ended up killing the giants, many of the giants. I don't know. I guess you could call that genocide if they went specifically after giants. But anyway, let's look at our passage in Deuteronomy chapter 20. This is a very serious accusation. It is like many of the uh, tough questions we've been dealing with. It is one of the obstacles for some people 
to say that they believe in the God of the Bible or want to trust the God that is portrayed in the Bible. So if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 20, starting in verse 10, this is God giving instructions through Moses right before the Israelites are to enter the promised land, okay? And he says, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. So basically, God's not even talking about the people that are in the promised land yet. He's talking about on your way and around about. If you're involved in a war, offer them peace, which we're going to get to the tough part in a minute. This was not even done in those days. It's like, you want to go to war? You just go to war and wipe them out. Don't offer anybody peace. So this actually is a concession to God's goodness and his grace. He says, listen, don't you be like the rest of the nations. If you have to get involved in a war, try to have peace first. Okay? Now, that's not where we're headed. I'm just, I just wanted to point out that there are other instructions. In fact, if you read the first part of Deuteronomy chapter 20, he's got... God's got some really great instructions on people that are involved in the army and um, the very humane ways of people to be involved and how they can be excused from it because of certain life situations that none of the other nations ever did. But it's the next part we're going to read that's like, oh, that's brutal. <laughs> okay, so we get to that in verse 16. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Some people said they should have put the termites in there too. <laughs> As the Lord your God has commanded that they may not teach you to do anything, uh, do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. So. Before we jump into talking about all the stuff that I studied and wrote down and put on your note sheet so I could explain it to you and get you involved in the discussion, let's just have that discussion. Why did God tell the Israelites to kill the Canaanites? If somebody came to you and asked you that question, God seems to be mean. He's, he seems to be very violent. He seems to be very brutal. He told the Israelites to kill all the Canaanites, even the women and the children. How would you defend that? How would you explain that? What would you say? Marissa. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if I could repeat that and summarize it for the recording. If you got roaches in your house and you want to get rid of your roaches, you got to get rid of all of them. Not just the daddies, but the mommies and the babies and the eggs. Everything. And that is true. Where most people would probably have a problem is comparing people to roaches. But you did follow it up saying that these people were terribly wicked people. And we're going to get into that. And that because of the, well, why wouldn't we get rid of the, inf- the roaches? Because of the influence, the dirty, whatever. And to get rid of the influence of these people, they all had to be wiped out. That's the point you're trying to make. Very good point. Not making fun. 
Brought a lot of laughter, which is good. Chris. Yeah, that goes back to the illustration that Carlton gave, which we're not dealing with that passage tonight, but same principles. Later in Israel's history, God told Saul to kill all the Amalekites, okay? For the very same reasons we're going to look at tonight for the Canaanites, okay? So the principles apply the same. Saul did not carry through with it, and later on, the descendants of some of those Amalekites became Haman, who tried to kill all the Jews in the book of Esther. A direct correlation there. And a little bit of a spoiler, uh, God's people didn't eliminate all the Canaanites either, and it caused a lot of problems. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Any other thoughts about how you would explain that, defend that, or whatever? Why did God tell the Israelites to kill the Canaanites? Lynn? All right. So God is a God of justice. These people were tremendously sinful, tremendously rebellious. There was concern that they would influence and infect God's people themselves, which they ended up doing because they didn't wipe them all out, you know. And uh, I thought you were going to go a different direction as God is sovereign and he can do whatever he wants. And that is true, too. That is true, too. Okay, well, let's jump into here. And I want to give to you another view that is possible. I don't think it's the one, but there are some Bible scholars that believe this is possible. And so I just want to throw that out there, spend a little bit of time on that, but then talk about um, the other side of it. And the first thing, the first major category on your note sheet, and that is that some say these instructions are not to be taken literally, but hyperbolically. Now, hyperbolically may be a new word for you. It may not. Does anybody know what, can anybody tell me what hyperbole means, which is the shortened form of hyperbolically? What does, what is hyperbole? It's a figure of speech of exaggeration. We often think of exaggeration as lying. It's not meant to be talking about people lying. It's talking about using a figure of speech to make a point. Okay? Like I say, you always say that. Well, that's not a good example because you should never say that to your spouse. Okay? You always do that. You know, when you exaggerate, when you blow it up, uh, and again, the purpose isn't to lie, but just to really make a point. And that is a valid figure of speech. And there are those who would say that God's instructions here are meant to be that way. They weren't meant to be taken totally literally, but they are aggressive to make a point. The support for that, again, we're just going to deal with this part very quickly. Um, Number one, ancient Near Eastern military instructions and records were deliberately exaggerated for emphasis. In other words, Everybody in the known world at that time, when they would talk about their military instructions, when they would talk about their military um, uh, records, they would deliberately exaggerate. There's all kinds of archaeological evidence from different nations that say, well, we went in and we totally wiped out this nation. But you look at the rest of us like, well, they, they had a victory, but they didn't like totally wipe them out. But that was just the way we did it, you know, that kind of thing. And we might say, well, why under what would they do that? We do very similar things today. you got a coach that talks to their basketball team, football team, soccer team, cricket team, whatever one. I say, all right, guys, I want you to go there. Wipe them out. Destroy them. Just kill them. Do they mean that literally? Hopefully not. <laughs> they mean, let's just let's just really do the job, Okay. Um, so there are some that would say that that is what God is trying to communicate here. All right. Is there any other examples in the Bible of hyperbole being used? There's lots of it. Just look it up on the Internet. But I can give you one that Jesus used himself when Jesus said, and he's talking about lust and all that kind of stuff. He says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out your right hand, chop it off. 
Did Jesus mean for that to be applied literally? I would say only if that's the only way he could solve the problem. But no, it was hyperbole. It was a figure of speech. Something said very strongly. Okay, now I'm not advocating for this view. As I said, I personally don't believe this is it, but this is a possible valid view because that's the way it was in the culture back then. Second one, the cities attacked were primarily military outposts that did not house women and children. Most of the families lived in the country. And the idea being that um, it was, say, go out there, wipe these cities out, and that would cause everybody else just to leave. All right? And that leads to the third one. Well, I'll give you time to write that one down first. The cities attacked were primarily military outposts that did not house women and children. Third one. The end goal was not annihilation, but gradual expulsion. In other words, the end goal was not to just literally totally wipe out every person and every animal. You might say, why would they want to wipe out the animals? We'll talk about that in a few minutes, okay? Um, but it was just basically to do what you had to do to get them to leave and to leave the area, to leave the country so they would not be an influence. Um, we see that a little bit. We see... Let me say that we see statements that could be taken that way. Deuteronomy 7.22, it says, The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. He said, you know, you can't handle if they all leave at the same time. Okay. Deuteronomy 9.5, the Lord is driving them out before you. It makes it sound like he's going to push them out rather than wipe them out. Deuteronomy 18.12, it says, Because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Leviticus 18.24, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these things the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. So again, some of the wording, it makes it sound like God's saying, okay, we want them pushed away. We want them out of here, not necessarily all completely annihilated. And then the last thing, number four, I'm doing this fast because I want to spend more time on the, the other part. The Bible states that Joshua fully obeyed the Lord's command And yet, at the end of his life, there were still Canaanites living in the land. And I'm not going to read Joshua 10.40 or Joshua 11.15 or Joshua 23.12-13. It says, Joshua fully obeyed the Lord. That would seem to indicate that there's no more Canaanites living there. But there are still Canaanites living there. And I'm going to talk about why that is so by the time we get to the end of our lesson tonight. But some have used that to say that's because it was never God's full intent to totally annihilate them, but just to push them out. But unfortunately, they didn't leave. All right. Now, again, if these arguments are valid, God was simply authorizing a military action to drive out his enemies, uh, God's enemies, Israel's enemies, so that they could um, take the land. And the point of the hyperbole would be to really emphasize you've got to get rid of them. They've got to be gone because they're a bad influence. Now, again, I personally don't think that this is the answer, but there are a lot of Bible scholars that believe it is. We'll find out when we get to heaven, won't we? Okay. I personally think that God said what he meant and meant what he said, and that even though there are other places in Scripture where God and Jesus use hyperbole validly, I don't think this is one of them. But I wanted to throw it out there. And the only reason I did is that there may come a time that you are talking with someone who really wrestles with this issue, and you can tell them the rest of what we're going to study tonight, because that's what you believe, that happens to be what I believe, but that still sticks in their throat. You can say, well, there is also another thought, another theory that is potentially possible. I, I don't believe that, it, but it's potential, and that might help with the issue. Okay. So, yes, Lynn. One of the things that 
Unless it's meant to be hyperbole, but I don't think it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, so the main part of what we're looking at here, assuming God meant these instructions literally, how do we defend them? And that's what we started out with. So uh, everything that you guys said at the very beginning has a very, very important part to play in this. So let me just kind of lay it out here in a way that I put it down, that I, for me is logically, hopefully it is for you too. Number one is this, all people are sinners and are under God's judgment. Okay, forget about singling out the Canaanites or any other ites, okay? All people. Now, we don't like to believe that. We don't like to admit that. And even if we are willing to admit that, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm not near as bad as, the point is it doesn't matter. We are all sinners. We are all deserving of God's judgment. We talked about this some more with a couple other tough questions like, you know, what about people that haven't heard the gospel? You know, how can a loving God send people to hell? You know what? God didn't have to provide salvation. God didn't have to offer salvation. God could take anybody's life at any time as judgment for their sins and be totally and completely righteous, just, and holy. Passages that you all have heard, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank God for the free gift we have available through Jesus Christ. Um, a guy by the name of Michael Kruger, um, in an article he wrote, Is God Guilty of Genocide? It's on the internet. He said, at any moment, God could take the life of any human as judgment for their sins, and he would be totally justified in doing so. He owes salvation to no one. He provides it, I mean, he offers it to everyone, but he owes it to no one. So God could himself have just wiped out all the Canaanites. He could do as he instructed the Israelites, to use the Israelites. See, the Israel, this is really isn't in a battle, we'll get to this later. This really isn't a battle between the Israelites and the Canaanites. This is God using the Israelites to deal with the Canaanites, okay? And so, in a very real way, it could have happened, it could be, God could do anything to anybody to bring his judgment upon sin, and he'd be fully just for it. The second point here is God was not demanding genocide, but divine judgment for sin. So this deals with the question of God doing the genocide thing. This is not genocide. It seems like it because he's telling them to wipe out these particular people groups, but he's not telling them to wipe out these people particular people groups just because of those particular people groups is because of what they're involved in. It's a judgment on their sin. Okay? Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 5, God tells them it's not because of your... In fact, he tells his own people. He says, it's not because you're so holy. It's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going in to possess this land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. He's trying to keep them humble. And we need to be kept humble too. He says, it's not because you're such wonderful people that I'm doing this. It's because those people are so wicked and they've got to be dealt with. All right? The Deuteronomy 18, verse 9 and then verse 12. He says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. And then if you read chapter 18 later, it has a whole list, and I'm going to summarize them for you in a little bit, of the abominable practices, or at least some of them they were involved in. Verse 12, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. 
He says it's not because of who they are. It's not because of who they're descended from. It's not because they're their race, their ethnicity, their nationality. It's because they are so wicked. Okay? Um, Leviticus 18.24 says something similar. I will not read that. There's one place that gets a little poetic. God says that they are so wicked that the land is vomiting them out. The land itself is rejecting them. Now, something to throw out here, people uh, sometimes take this and then add a bunch of other stuff. They say, well, look at all the other wars that were fought by God's people in the Old Testament, and this, that, and the other. And, and let me just say this, not all of Israel's wars were approved by God. I mean, there's examples of wars that Israel's king said, I'm going to go fight this, and God says, you're not supposed to do that. In fact, he has prophets tell him not to do that. There are times that there are other wars that he did approve of. And if you study your biblical history, I would say many, and I didn't count them, so I can't honestly totally say most, but it may be most of the wars that God's people fought were wars of defense rather than offense. People attacking them. Even in Joshua... Most of the battles start because the people attack them. But I have to admit that if you got an enemy coming against you, I mean coming into your country, and you think they want to kick you out, you probably would start a fight with them, okay? So just for their defense, all right? All right, but here's what it, where it gets down to. Why did God feel it so necessary? Because this is a one-time thing. You don't see anywhere else except for Saul with the Amalekites, okay, where God tells... Um, his people, go wipe out everybody. Everybody else is like, listen, when people come against you, there's a battle, try to settle it peacefully, okay? If not, and he gets instructions for humane, whatever, the ways of carrying out war, all right? Um, but this whole idea of um, wiping everybody out, this is it, all right? This is not an excuse for any other people, including Israel, all right, to venture out and commit genocide, try to wipe out a whole people group, which we've seen throughout history in a number of places. You know, uh, you got the Nazis in World War II. You've got um, a number of other examples. And it's interesting. I find it very interesting, even in the war today, okay, between Israel and Hamas, that Israel has not just gone in and tried to wipe out all the Palestinians, you know what I'm saying? And they're trying to avoid civilian casualties and all that, which is all stuff that God has put in his word. But they are defending themselves. And, and I don't want to get into a deep political discussion of the current war. But, Lynn, you had your hand up. What did you want to say? Right, but he didn't tell his people to go do it. Yes, yes. Okay, so number three comes down to why was this particular situation... Uh, this way that God told him to go in there and wipe it out. Number three, the Canaanites were utterly brutal, immoral, and wicked. Now, again, you could probably use that to describe any number of cultures, and that'd be true. But at this particular time, these were the worst of people. All right? The Canaanites were utterly brutal, immoral, and wicked. Now, this may be considered a trivia question, but for those of you that have studied the Bible or whatever, what were some of the things that the people, the Canaanites, what were they involved in that was so brutal, immoral, and wicked? John. Child sacrifice. They would offer their children, not all of them, or they wouldn't have continued to exist as a people, but they would offer their children as sacrifices. Okay? Archaeologists say that this could be children from the time of birth all the way up through four years of age. 
the most popular way of offering their this is probably the most one that's most abhorrent, at least to me. The way they would offer their children is that they would have the statue of their God with an outstretched hands and they'd have a big fire either in the belly of the God or underneath it and they would lay the child on the arms alive and just watch it wither and burn. And there's some actually some pretty gruesome descriptions uh, I'm not going to repeat of what that was like and what and other ones where they would have this big pot that they would drop into uh, just terrible things. Okay? What are some other things that they were involved in? Anybody know? Tremendous sexual promiscuity and immorality, immorality of all kinds. Of all kinds. Uh, let me just read this here. They were involved, in, this is uh, some of the things. They were involved in divination. They were involved in witchcraft, female and male temple sex, adultery, homosexuality, transvestitism, pederasty, which is a word that means men sexually abusing boys. This is all approved as part of their worship, by the way. Bestiality. That's one of the reasons they were to put all the animals to death. You know, don't be having animals that were involved in having sex with humans. Okay? Uh, bestiality, incest, and child sacrifice. We already described that. Um, archaeological evidence indicates the children burned to death numbered in the thousands. You know, it's really sad as if you look at this list. A lot of these things are very common today. And some of these things I read, it's like, well, what's the big deal about that? Because our culture has already accepted it. Adultery, sexual immorality, homosexuality, transvestitism, that kind of stuff. But at this time, because of God's standards, it was considered to be terribly, terribly um, wicked and immoral. But you know what? Even the child sacrifice is true today. Not by offering them up to an idol, but when you think about abortion and the number of children that have been killed by parents' choice. Yeah. Child sacrifice its really what it comes down to, okay? So what's really interesting to me and kind of makes me smile a little bit, not this description at all, but some of the people who object to God condemning the Canaanites are the same ones who object to God allowing evil to continue and not doing anything about it. You know, they say, well, how could a good God let evil continue? And so we got this example of God saying, okay, I'm going to put an end to this particular because they are so bad. Well, how could God do that? It's like they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth, you know. They're contradicting themselves. Number four was mentioned by a couple of you guys. This evil had to be eliminated so that God's people would not participate in it. The passage we started out with in Deuteronomy 20 that gave the description of what they were supposed to do, that's how it ended. In Deuteronomy 20, 18, it says that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods so that you sin against the Lord your God. And unfortunately, Israel did not carry out God's instructions fully. They started out well. Joshua did his part. But as they continued, you know, we we, we already read, God says it's going to be gradual, but the Israelites did not continue to drive them out, and so Canaanites did stay there. And there's all kinds of other instructions that we didn't even read tonight where God says that, you know, don't intermarry with them, don't do this because they're going to influence you and all that kind of stuff. And the Israelites did exactly those things. Um, Judges 1, verses 28 to 33, chapter 3, verse 5 to 7, and chapter 21, 25 all describe that. You can read that on your own. But it talks about how they did not carry, fully carry out God's instructions and how the people ensnared them and they became like the Canaanites and God had to discipline them. Okay. And God had to bring judgment on them. 
Number five, this is interesting. This is a, a less known fact. Talking about the Canaanites now, not the Israelites, but talking about the Canaanites, these people God says to destroy, God in his grace had already given them more than 400 years to repent. It wasn't like God just got up one day and said, I'm upset with these people, just wipe them out. They've started to do some bad things. No, 400 years they had opportunity. Okay? Um, we go back to the story of Abraham, which is about 400 years before this. In Genesis 15, verses 13 to 16, God's telling Abraham that his descendants are going to go into another nation and be slaves. He tells them ahead of time. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve. In this case, it's talking about Egypt. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in the good old age. And they shall come back here, because Abraham was living in Canaan as a sojourner, okay, as a wanderer. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, after 400 years, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites were one of the group of people, but it was used as a picture of all of them. God's saying, they're already bad people, but I have determined I'm not going to judge them yet. But they're going to get to the point. 400 years. But as you get closer to it, when you read the story of Joshua, you find out that they had heard about what God had done in Egypt and how God had humiliated Egypt and Pharaoh and delivered his people, all the miracles he had done. Rahab tells the spies that they're scared to death because they know exactly what God has done. They had the opportunity to repent, even right before the judgment came. And as a nation or as a group, people groups, they chose not to. And that leads us to number six. There is indication that if they had repented, they would have been allowed to live. Why can we say that? What, what indication is there? What examples are there that if they had repented, they would have been allowed to live? What did you say, Marissa? Rahab. Rahab the prostitute, right? She hid the spies. She was the one that talked to the spies. The spies went into Jericho. Check it out, you know. And she says, we're scared to death because we've heard about what God's done. And I'm, she basically says, I'm choosing to believe in your God. And since I've helped you, can I be delivered? They said yes. And she was. And she became an ancestress of Jesus. Okay? If God was willing to take her repentance into account and not have her destroyed and her family, I would seem to think that he would probably would have... Uh, forgiven or, or allowed anybody who repented and turned away from their idols to join the Israelites to to um, uh, be delivered. Yeah, Carlton. I think it's not very funny words that God repentance. Yeah, God's word says that God is not willing that any perish but come to repentance. And, um, you know, there's examples in, um, I think it's Jeremiah or Ezekiel or maybe both, where God says, I don't want the evil to suffer. You know, if somebody's wicked and they repent, I'll forgive them. But if somebody's trying to do the right thing and they say, forget you, God, and go to, it's like, well, they're going to receive judgment for their sins. You know? And um, is there any other examples in Joshua of people who were not destroyed? Not in Joshua. Yeah, in Joshua. How about the Gibeonites? Now, they tricked the Israelites. But the Israelite, God could have said, wipe them out anyway, because they tricked you, you know, but they didn't. The Gibeonites said, 
uh-uh, we're not, we're not going there. <laughs> we'll be servants, we'll be slaves, we'll be, don't wipe us out, okay? We, we, whatever. And so that's why you have Joshua 2 and Joshua 9. Joshua 2 is the story of Rahab, and Joshua 9 is the story of the Gibeonites. And basically God said, you know, let them live. You know, they showed a proper fear and respect for God and his people and, and God's ways, and so he let them live. But we already mentioned some other examples um, of this principle in the Bible. Uh, it's already been mentioned, the Ninevites, okay? God was going to totally destroy the Ninevites. He sent Jonah. Jonah wanted them to be destroyed. He was not a very sympathetic prophet. But then again, the Ninevites were Assyrians, and they were terribly awful, wicked people who were the enemies of Israel. All right? I've said this before, but it'd be sort of like God saying to us to go and preach to the jihadists that uh, God's going to destroy them, but they need to repent. And we're like, they don't deserve that. <laughs> you know. And I don't mean people that are want to be jihadists, but people that have already murdered and killed and raped and done all that kind of stuff. But anyway, that's kind of like what it was for Noah, to, uh, no, not Noah, to, for Jonah to have to go to the Ninevites. But the point is, is that when they repented, God did not judge them. Now, later on, they turned from their repentance, as Lynn mentioned, and they were destroyed, but that was a couple hundred years later. Okay? So um, I think of the example of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. And God had a, a law. He had a rule. He says, people from Moab, they can't become part of God's people. And again, it wasn't such a cut-and-dried thing because they wouldn't repent. They were wicked. They were evil. But Ruth accepted Israel's God, and so she was accepted. In, and she also became an ancestress of Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of how God can forgive anybody if they're willing to repent and submit to him. Okay? Uh, number seven, and this is often not considered, God is consistent. He brought judgment on his own people because of their sin. You know, when they didn't drive them out or destroy them, I destroy them was what I meant to say, when they didn't and they left them there and they intermarried and they got caught up in their sin, God brought judgment on his own people. And you look at the history of God's people. When they walked away from him, when they rejected him, when they worshipped other idols, he brought judgment on them, the same kind of judgment. Okay? So God's consistent. He judges. And this shows us how serious sin is. This story should show, you know, we need to do whatever we can do to get sin out of our lives. All right? In fact, we see more of God's judgment on his own people on the in the Bible than any other nation, <laughs> you know? And um, so, but that still leaves the last question I have on your note sheet that really sticks in us, and I, I meant to say this at the beginning, and I'll just say it now, that we're not going to settle this question to the degree it's like, oh, I'm totally fine with this. This is another one of those questions we got to wrestle with and to the best of our ability understand, and then just realize, you know what? God's God. He knows what's best, and whatever answer there is, I'll understand it one day. But the big question is, but why the children? Why the children? Okay. Um, and verse would say, because you got to kill the baby roaches too. <laughs> Just bring a little levity in here. But, you know, some would say, why kill the innocent women and children? They throw the women in there too. This is not to be chauvinistic, but this is to say that history and archaeology show us that the women were just as involved in all this wickedness as the men were, and in some cases, even worse, even in the history of God's own people. Okay? talks about women who led their husbands astray and that kind of stuff. Again, not to be chauvinist, not saying it's 100% true, but 100% every woman or whatever. But um, but it still does leave the children, the children. In all the study that I did, I came up with these two thoughts that I have for you on the note sheet. They're not totally satisfying, okay? 
but there are reasons. The first one is every act of national judgment includes collateral damage. I hate that phrase, collateral damage. It's used in war, whatever. You know, you have to accomplish something. It just has to be done. And in the process of doing it, innocent people get hurt. Okay? They do. They do. If you think about the other, how are some of the other ways that God brought judgment either on his own people or on other people besides a nation attacking them, killing them, capturing them, exiling them? What are some other ways that God brought judgment? Disease, pestilence, locusts was pestilence, famine, drought. Was it just the adults that were affected by that? Everybody is. You know, when there is a judgment on a nation, everybody's affected. Yeah, Chris. Yeah, God used his angels one time. He brought judgment on the Assyrians, but there was a time that God used an angel to bring judgment on his own people. Yeah. Yeah, everybody's born sinners, you're right. But it, but the, the children, you know, because they haven't had a chance to choose, that kind of thing. But this, this again, illustrates a very, very important biblical principle, practical principle, a principle we see in our lives. Our sin doesn't just affect us, okay? It affects everyone around us. In fact, I'm not thinking anybody in particular, but there are some of you that you were affected by your parents' sins, your grandparents' sins, Okay? Um, because our sins affect everybody around us. We all know people, even if it's not us, that have been tremendously affected in a negative way, not because of something they did, but because somebody they were married to or somebody else that was a relative or somebody took advantage of them, somebody, whatever, you know, our sins affect everyone around us. The yeast effect, yeah. Yeah, sin gets in a bunch of dough and it leavens the whole thing. Yes, Lisa. Yeah, the, the the whole thing of parents raising their children, even if they don't intentionally do it, their children learn from them, but especially if they intentionally do it. And that brings it to the second thing here, number two. Even though the children were killed, they were spared a much worse condition being raised to be as wicked as their parents. And what I would say probably most believers believe, I've not taken a poll, and that is that for children... Before the time they know right from wrong and are able to choose that, if something happens, then they go to heaven. They have a, a place with God. That God's grace covers that. That's a good question. We didn't deal with that one, but anyway. Um, you know, uh, so, yeah, even though the children were killed, they were spared a much worse condition being raised to be as wicked as their parents. You say, well, why didn't they just take all the children in and raise them as their own? Well, you know, you have a nation that comes in and kills your parents and all the people you love dearly and they're raising you in their home. You don't think there's going to be bitterness and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, well, I'm going to live the way my parents did. And so, again, it was kind of funny. Um, and we don't like to compare people to roaches, but Verissa's example was a very good example. When, when there's a cancer in your body, you don't just take out most of it. You've got to take out all of it even that which is not in advanced stages. That sounds a little hard. And like I said, this is one of those questions, I don't know about you, but I don't feel totally settled with that, but at least it helps me a little bit, okay? And I just, here's what I do with questions that I don't have 100% settled in my mind. I know my God, okay? And I know what he's done for me. I know the truth and the things that I know for sure give me the confidence that God is who he says he is. And if there's something about him or his actions or whatever that I understand, I know that God's God. I'm not. His ways are above my ways. His thoughts are above my thoughts. And whether I ever understand it or not, it it makes sense to God and I'm going to trust him. So that's why I look at it. So.
we wrap this up. The conquering of Canaan was not Israel versus Canaan, but God versus human evil. The last scripture I have down there, Joshua 5, 13 to 15, I thought this was really interesting. We've studied this before. I've preached on it before. But just before the battle of Jericho, okay, the Israelites have already crossed the Jordan River. They're camped there. They're getting all geared up. You know, the spies have gone. And Joshua goes out. I, I have a feeling he went out to pray. Okay, it doesn't say he's just out walking around. And um, we pick it up in Joshua 5, verse 13. It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. <laughs> Don't you love it when you ask somebody, you give them a choice, and they just say no? It's like, which one, which one? No. And basically, neither. Neither. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. What's he saying? He says, uh-uh. It's not like I'm picking you or God's picking you over the Canaanites. The question is, who are you picking? Are you on God's side? Okay. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. It's not so much about whether God's on our side or not. It's are we on God's side? And that's how I think we personally can apply this to our lives, besides hopefully having a better understanding of why it happened and all that kind of stuff, be able to defend our faith better, is do we see sin as God sees it? Very easy in our culture to to not see sin as serious as it really is because our culture has so much accepted so much of it. Okay? And do we do what we can about it? So to wrap this up, I go back to what I said before. It said in Judges, uh, Joshua, that Joshua obeyed fully what God told him to do. But there's still Canaanites because it wasn't just his responsibility. He was the leader. What that tells me is he did everything to the best of his ability to do what God told him to do. But there's still a work to be done and it was other people's responsibility. So when we look at the evil and the wickedness in our world, God doesn't call us to do the same thing. He's not telling us to go out and kill all the wicked people. He's calling us to go out and love them and reach them. Win them to Jesus. Are we doing everything we can about the wickedness in our world? So that's how we apply it tonight. Father, thank you for the time that we've had to look at your word tonight to, to answer this tough question. And Lord, we don't have all the answers, but we thank you that you've given us enough to know that we can trust you. And God, we pray that you'd work in this wicked world and work through us to point people to Jesus. We thank you for your grace, the grace that offered salvation to us even though we don't deserve it. We thank you for your patience that you didn't cut us off before we responded. God, I pray that you would use us to reach out to the people around us, the other people that you would like to reach, that you don't want to have to judge because Jesus already paid for it. And God, we thank you and praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org.